We're going to start with uh, Jeremiah chapter 1, just for fun. If you, if you have your Bible, open to Jeremiah 1. I'm not going to preach from here. I just want to show you something. I have preached this passage, but um, I wanted to just talk through this briefly in preparation for module 7, session 4. Or how to study the Bible, observation part three. Uh, James O'Eiler says I have the longest titles he's ever seen, and that's by design. I am a Puritan at heart. You should see their titles. They're like sentences. So, and I, I'll give you a little precursor to Jeremiah one. Um, so God is calling Jeremiah to to preach the word in a very unique and unusual ministry. Basically, the call to Jeremiah is preach the word to a whole bunch of people who are not going to listen and that I'm about to punish. So, uh, you know, not the most exciting call to ministry in the world, but that was what God called Jeremiah to. Um, But the precursor is this. Once in a while, um, actually quite often, when somebody new comes to grace... um, and they're, they're genuinely wanting to learn and so forth, it's a shock to the system to find that they don't agree with everything that we teach. And it begins a process of sanctification because I, what, what they come to realize very quickly is I have a decision to make. Either I'm going to pridefully be mad every time something's said I don't already agree with, or I'm going to allow the structures of theology in my heart and my mind that have not been correct, I'm going to allow them to be torn away. And uh, that, that's a painful process. I've sat with people just for just in tears because everything they believed has been torn down. And I want to show you that that's what the Word of God is supposed to do. Look at Jeremiah 1 verse 9. Then Yahweh sent forth his hand and touched my mouth. And Yahweh said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms. And then this is very familiar to us. Here are the six things that the word of God is supposed to do from the lips of Jeremiah. To uproot, to tear down, to cause to perish, and to pull down. This is very destructive. This is taking all things that are false and ripping them away. I mean, he's, he's redundant. I'm going to uproot it. I'm going to tear it down. I'm going to make it die. I'm going to pull it down. You, you think of a, a, a weed being pulled up, a, a building being torn down, um, something being killed. Uh, I see it as part of my mission to kill bad theology. We, we need to. It needs to be killed in our hearts so that, so that someday you go, Oh yeah, remember when I used to think that? Once that plowing and that destruction happens, now you have the ability to do the last two, to build and to plant. You, you wouldn't ever try to plant crops on hardened, weed-infested ground. You have to uproot it. You have to clean it up. You would never try to build a building on mud. You have to harden that foundation. So... I just wanted to point that out as you're, as you're studying the Bible for yourself, as you're listening to preaching. The mature believer is poor in spirit and is mourning their own sin and is, is asking the Lord, tear something down in my heart today so that you can build something up. So I just wanted to point that out as you're doing your Bible study project and, and thinking about how to study the Bible, that the goal of Bible study is for you not to, it's not for you to just find a bunch of things you already agreed with. 
the goal of Bible study is as you're studying and making your observations, which we've been talking about and will continue today, part of the goal is for you to have some very humbling aha moments of that's not what I believe, but I must bow to Scripture. I must bow to the clear evidence of Scripture. So I hope that'll be the effect on you. And then as you share what you're learning and what you're studying, then that'll be the effect on others as well. So I'm going to pray and then I'll kind of give you the layout for today and we'll see if we can get through all of it this morning. Our Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day. Thank you for the the beautiful sky. We're grateful for those in Bakersfield. We don't get a lot of those, but um, it it reminds us, Lord, that you are sovereign and that you are um, the God who uh, is glorified in the heavens. You are glorified by the general revelation of the, of the heavens and creation, and you're glorified by the, the specific revelation, the special revelation of the Word of God. And I pray that in that special revelation, this day, this Lord's Day, we would find guidance and comfort, that you would tear down that which is false in our hearts and minds, and you would build up that which is true. I pray that that would make us all more like Christ. I pray, Lord, that we would have a day today that's just glorious, that's just epic in terms of fellowshipping with one another, hearing your word, singing your word, embracing one another, Lord, in Christ. We thank you and praise you for this time. In Christ's name, amen. So kind of the layout for today is uh, we're going to talk about making sense and summarizing, uh, making sense of and summarizing your observations. We're going to talk about how to put your cross-references and word studies into your observation summaries. And I know we're, we went from talking about lofty things all the way now to just the mundane, but the mundane gets us to the lofty, right? Uh, we're going to talk about one useful tool, the dispensationalist friend, the chart. Um, and I'm going to show you how to do charts, and, and I'll do some sample charts as well. Um, we're going to talk about finding the theology in your passage and give you about eight or nine rules for formulating doctrinal implications. Because if you're not, if you're not going to the theology in your passage, then you're not learning the, the deeper truths that are supposed to be there for us. Um, I, I don't mean deeper truths as in uh, the low-level Christians find the truth and the big Christians find the deeper truths. I just mean finding the theology that's there. And then I'll just uh, tell you what's next on your observation assignment for all of you that are doing this. So um, I'm going to just exclusively use our example from Ephesians 4, 31 and 32 to make this easier. So the first thing I want to talk about is uh, turning this on so that it actually works. That would be the first thing to talk about. Okay, there we go. So just to, just to be reminded of... Um, this is our this is our passage here. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. So, I want to make sense of your observations, summarize them. We're kind of at the halfway point of processing all the observations you've been making. Um, and, and last time I used the phrase "getting rid of the dead weight" in your observations. That's kind of negative. This is the positive side of that. Um, what you're trying to do now is uh, what I do every single week and boil things down to the richest material. Um, the, the, the material that really is uh, the, the greatest flavor, so to speak. We did 72 observations 
from this text. And I gave you, I'm giving you here some sample combinations. And we're not interpreting yet, we're just observing. But what I've done is taken many of them and, and put them together logically. Um, we'll do interpretive statements later. Um, and you might still refer to your detailed observations, but these are helpful because as you combine them, this is when you really start getting to know the text. This is when it becomes part of you because you're sifting your mind through this, or sifting it through your mind again. So I'll just give you some of these combinations here. Paul is speaking to the Ephesian believers on the topic of dealing with someone who has offended them. The context is walking worthy from chapter 4, verse 1. So that's a a combination of three or four observations that we made earlier. He tells them what not to do and what to do, that they must put off and put on. Now, if you're preparing this to present to somebody, whether it's third graders or a women's Bible study or whatever, right now you're already starting to go, I think that's kind of an interesting way to think about this. Um, that as you combine observations, it begins to uh, tweak your your thinking as far as how you might present it. Um, I, I don't know about you, but I don't ever want to attend a Bible study where, where the teacher says, I'm going to give you 77 unrelated facts. Number one. Uh, that's just not interesting, right? And it's not memorable. Um, so you, you want things that, that we are woven together that, that tell a story. And this is where you start to get some of that. And um, just skipping ahead and kind of digressing here for a moment. If you are thinking about using your study to ever present to anybody, and I hope you all do. I hope even if you just call up somebody and say, hey, do you have an hour at Starbucks? I want to teach a Bible study to you. Um, if you're thinking about that, never waste an opportunity to make note of potential good ideas for your presentation. Um, I, some schools of thought say you should never think about that till you're done studying. Well, I, that's silly to me. Um, this is somewhat like painting a painting. There is a science to it, but there's an art as well. And when you have a good idea, put it down. You might not use it, but... Um, when I was, uh, uh, sorry for some of you in the room, when I was wasting part of my life as a music major, uh, one, of my, uh, one of my professors required that you uh, carry a, a staff paper notebook around with you at all times. And if you ran into him in the hall, he would say, show me your notebook. Now show me what you've written in it today. So, because you never let a good idea go. You always wrote it down. And um, I, I took that with me. I always have a way, whether I'm at CVS picking up a prescription or whether I'm taking a walk, I always have a way to make note of something that I think will work well on Sunday. Always. Um, as I'm praying and thinking about something, I never say, oh, that's a great idea. I hope I remember that. Nope, it's going down. I have a whole app on my phone that is strictly for dumping ideas from my brain. 99 out of 100 of them never get used, but the one that does is usually what 10 people say, that was my favorite part of the sermon. So don't waste the opportunity when you're combining your, op- uh, your observations here. He tells them what not to do and what to do. There's a lesson outline right there. So, uh, and I'll show you an example of it soon. Okay, back on track. They are to put off holding grudges, judging someone worthy of wrath, murderous attitudes, uh, making trouble, harming reputations, malicious actions. These are three internal and three external sins. That's putting together five or six observations into one. 
They are to put on an empathetic internal attitude, actions which match this, including and highlighted by forgiveness. That's a combination of three or four. Outward sinful actions betray what is in the heart, and outward righteous actions reflect what is in the heart. Okay, if you are doing this for just yourself or even for others, one of the main uh, one of the main reasons we do this is application. And I know application is at the top of the hermeneutic pyramid and theoretically it's last, but like presentation ideas, when you come across an application that may end up being valid, make a note of it. Um, I'm always thinking about application for whatever text I'm about to preach, and then I usually sift through them and say, these three don't make sense, but this one is exactly on target. And invariably, it was one I wrote down or I noted uh, a week ago or Um, I like to study ahead, so sometimes four or five weeks ago, and it turns out to be the best one. So um, make notes of those. And then the last little combination in context of Ephesians, the power of the Spirit, chapter 518, enables one to obey these commands. So that's just a a sample of synthesizing some of those uh, observations. And this is where you begin to see patterns, you begin to connect the dots. And the mundane work of saying, you know, there are three occurrences of the word and and two occurrences of the word but, that all begins to come together as you combine them. And let me tell you, a really easy way to combine them. One of the greatest Bible study tools ever invented is a pack of multicolored highlighters. Because if you have eight or ten different colors of highlighters and you have all your observations you take green for example and you highlight the first one and you just start reading down oh this is this goes with that one and this goes with that one and you have all your greens take another color and you can do that very simply that's a great way to combine them then the next step is uh, putting in your oh there's more Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, what you're doing is uh, you're putting in your cross-reference and word study notes, and you notice I did this just a little bit here. This is just copying and pasting if you're using an electronic uh, medium. Uh, to, this just speeds the process here. By now, you have a whole lot of information, and if it's any comfort to you, that's a good thing. The fact that you're not using some information means that you are are boiling it down to the very best. And so I'm continuing combining some of these, but I'm putting in some cross-reference and word study notes, and and I'm putting them all together now. Uh, Paul is speaking to the Ephesian believers on the topic of dealing with someone who has offended them. The context is walking worthy from 4.1. I haven't put anything there. We'll go down to the third one. They are to put off holding grudges, judging someone worthy of wrath, and so forth. Three internal and external sins. Well, we found uh, James 4.11 in our cross-reference study for clamor and slander. That was useful, so I make a note in there to see that. And then our word study for bitterness was also helpful there. And so you're just making a note, and that tells you what to do later. Um, Just to, and I don't know if this is useful to you or not, I always make a written plan for what a final sermon is going to look like. I want to see an outline. I want to see kind of where I'm going with it. And then the actual putting together of what you hear on a Sunday, um, that's that's the final piece of the puzzle. That's the very, very last thing I do. But I generally have a plan. First, I'm going to do this. Here's the flow. What I ask myself questions. I I know this is weird. I'm going to reveal this to you. I type my own name. Steve! Exclamation point. What is getting you from point two to three? What would make this make sense? And I force 
myself to go back and answer those questions so that I like the flow and I, and I feel good about it. And, and in there I put uh, things like, if you don't put James 4.11 here, you're an idiot. Uh, just to emphasize, this is, this is big. I, you know the word huge. I spell huge, H-A-U-G-E. It's a huge. And that's important to me. So make notes that this is big. This is key. If you're, if you're handwriting, circle, circle, circle. Highlight, highlight in five different colors. Um, because if in, during your study, if something just grabs your heart or you have one of those, this is the key to the whole thing or this, is the, this word is so important and misunderstood, um, those are the things others need to hear. And just a little easy rule of thumb, if it's interesting to you, it'll be interesting to others. Again, if you're just listing a whole bunch of facts that may or may not be helpful, that's not helpful. Um, Boil it down to the best stuff. Uh, You don't go to a restaurant and they just say, we're just going to give you a little piece of everything. No, you order what you want. You order the the things you want. Uh, The the fourth one there, they have to put on an empathetic internal attitude and so forth. I know that in here, see the Colossians 3.12 cross-reference study for kindness. See uh, Psalm 25.11 cross-reference study for forgiveness. See the word study for kind. So as you begin to cross-pollinate the various parts of your study, this begins to formulate. And what will happen is this really has a snowball effect. You, if you've ever tried that, that old uh, fun thing of trying to roll a snowball down a hill and, you, and you know, in cartoons it always turns into a giant nine-foot-wide uh, thing that decimates someone. Um, once in a while, that happens. When you're studying the Bible, you can expect that to happen every time. You should expect the snowball is, is hard to, to pack it at first and trying to add to it. And if you've ever wasted time making a snow fort, I've done a thousand of them with our kids and they're, they're fun. But you're, you're a tenth of the way into it going, this is really hard work. I'd rather be inside with hot chocolate. But with, with this, it always begins to snowball. And in fact, it'll start getting away from you. You go, okay, I've got enough. I've got more than enough. Um, if you've ever, if you've ever uh, been here long enough, to see that I say I was going to preach this in one message, but now it's going to be three. It's because I got run over by the snowball. And I didn't want to give any of it up. So, um, but that will happen for you. And that is, that is such a joy. Because that snowball just begins to accumulate. And you begin to understand the text. And it becomes a part of you. And then you're eager to share it with others. Now I want to talk about one useful tool. And that is the chart. Charts are like the Sabbath. They are made for man, not man made for charts. <laughs> Making a chart does not prove something to be true. Um, it's just a helpful organizational tr- tool. Um, and the reason I say they're like the Sabbath, they're made for you, they're not, you're not made for charts, is that nobody's grading you on these. Charts need to be helpful to you. Um, it helps you see passages, uh, patterns. Um, there's not a right or wrong way to do charts. You can be as creative as you want. Um, I make charts for everything I ever preach. It's just, it's just kind of the way I'm built. I like charts. It, it helps me, um, it helps me visualize. Like to me, um, I, I use PowerPoint when we're teaching in here because there's just a lot of information to take in. I specifically don't use PowerPoint when I preach. Um, for two reasons. It's not in the Bible. That's not really the real reason. But um, I, I want words are much more powerful than any visual. 
And I want you to visualize with words because words are how, um, how God has chosen to reveal himself. He did not send us a picture Bible. He sent us a, a Bible with words. Um, in Exodus 33, I believe it is, uh, Moses asked to see the glory of God. And you all know the story about how God hid him in the cleft of a rock and he passed and said, you'll see my back but not my front. How did God actually show his glory? The glory of God was shown by the words that God spoke. That he, he said, Yahweh, Yahweh. And, he, and God spoke who he is and what he is about. That he is loving and kind and he is gracious and he is wrathful. And um, that's how God chose to reveal his glory to Moses. Not with just another spectacular Red Sea type display. So all that is to say, charts help you put words down in a way that is picturesque. That is, uh, uh, has a flow, has a story to it. It's not just uh, a bunch of facts one after another. Let me give you some example charts. These aren't official categories. You can make any official, any category you want. You have an observation summary chart. You could have a topical summary chart. You can have a progression chart. I like progression charts because they, they help me to understand the flow of where, where am I starting, where am I going. Um, a lot of schools of thought say that you should start your, you, you should do your introduction and conclusion, whether it's in music or in, in, in public speaking or in a sermon, introduction and conclusion are last. I, that's generally the first thing I do. Because I know a text well enough, I want to know where I'm starting, I want to know where I'm going, and then everything in between needs to make sense according to those bookends. Um, and I can, I, I think I can call upon scripture for this precedent, um, because there's a, there's a structural um, technique in scripture called inclusio, which basically means it's a long passage that starts and ends with sometimes the exact same word or the same topic. That... Uh, that tells you this is what this is about. So, uh, a progression chart. You could have a possible presentation chart because, uh, as I said, by now you're you're seeing the passage in detail and you're naturally thinking about how am I putting all this together. Um, and, and I hope you'll do that. I hope you take what you learn and present it to somebody, even if, even if it's just to your spouse or to your children. However, you want to do that. So, let me give you some examples of these. Here's an example of an observation summary chart, again with Ephesians 4. The context is dealing with offense and walking worthy from Ephesians 4.1. My observations about putting off, put off grudges, judgment, murderous attitude, making trouble, harming reputation, malicious acts. I made a note to see James 4.11 and see bitterness. Putting on empathy, kindness, forgiveness. See Colossians three twelve. See uh, Psalm twenty five eleven, and see kind. All I did was take the list that was back here. That's this, this is that list, and put it in a chart like that. And I hope that's helpful for you. It's helpful to me. Um, if you're trying to teach a prophetic passage that makes predictions, you almost have to have a chart. That's why dispensationalists who love prophecy are famous for our charts. Um, they say that a dispensationalist without a chart can't even walk. So that's a, And I would tend to agree with that. Here's another example. A topical summary chart. 
Internal sin, bitterness, wrath, and anger, external sin, clamor, slander, malice, internal purity, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, and external purity, kind, forgiving one another in action. So what do you learn from this? What you learn is that forgiveness has two pieces to it. What happens in your heart and what happens between you and somebody else. And so just the act of making a chart begins to help you clarify um, truth. One of my favorites, because I think it's highly applicable, the progression chart. Internal sin leads to external sin, which means I need forgiveness. That leads to internal purity, which goes to external purity, purity which means I give forgiveness. That's a, that's a tremendous outline right there. Part one, let me talk about your need for forgiveness. Part two, let me talk about how you give forgiveness. And they both have to do with internal sin, internal purity, external sin, external purity. One leads to the other. And then uh, one more, and just as a reminder, these are uh, available online. The possible presentation chart. I, this, is, this is a chart I use all the time. Every time I have an idea of how to present a text, I, I write it down. Generally, by the time I get to uh, late in the week when I'm making my final decisions, um, I have anywhere from three to ten different ways I want to present a text. And I start at that point just, uh, to be honest with you, I don't know if I should tell you this, I just pick my favorite one. I just pick the one that speaks to me because I hope it will speak to others. But here is a possible presentation. I like this title. The Path to Peace, Finding Your Way After Losing the Trail. And the basic outline is that you look around and you turn around. Under looking around, you recognize faulty steps, and I'm staying with the theme. Check your compass, bitterness, wrath, and anger. Check your map, clamor, slander, and malice. You're, you're looking around. You're, you're, you're observing your own heart, your own behavior. And then the second part, turn around, retrace your steps, get a new compass. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, and get a new map, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. That's a, that's a killer idea. So whenever you have one of those, and you will, write it down, get it down, and that will help you be memorable um, for your own heart as well. Any questions on charts? I know know we're getting really nerdy at this point. So uh, what did you learn about Jesus today? Well, Jesus likes charts, apparently. So (laughs) any questions about charts before we move on? Number one rule. You make the rules for charts. That just do them how they're helpful to you. And the great thing is with uh, with word processing programs, you can literally just create however you want. You don't have to do it. I used to have to do and draw a big square on the piece of paper and and do it that way. Let's switch over now to finding the theology in your passage. And I'm going to give you eight rules, and I'll expand on them a little bit. And then uh, I, I think this will be helpful to you. The rules for formulating doctrinal implications. This is a bit of a side issue, but it's, it's important because as you go, you ought to be thinking in your study, uh, how, can I, how can I extract the theology? Not insert the theology. There's a big difference. How can I extract the theology here? So I'll give you some, uh, some rules here based on my assumption is, is that every verse of Scripture has some theological principle in it. Every verse does. And asking yourself that question, uh, for example, a, a genealogy? Okay, what is the theological principle there? The theological principle is that God wants us to know that, that time and, and, uh, and heritage matters to him. And so 
uh, that tells us something about God. It tells us that he's trying to communicate something to us. Well, every genealogy is different in that. Rule number one, formation of doctrine should rest mainly on literal versus figurative language. So in other words, if you're studying the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, the main idea being taught is that God is a forgiving God. The parable serves to illustrate the doctrine, but that's not the sole basis for the doctrine. If you're teaching something that's an illustration of theology, that's not the main basis. So you ought to find cross-references that help you um, teach that doctrine uh, more clearly. You, you utilize the clearer portion of Scripture. That's a great ground rule. The clearest portion of Scripture interprets the less clear. Um, that's, that's a good way to make sure that you're being consistent. Rule number two, formation of doctrine should be sensitive to progressive, progressive revelation. So, in other words, the clarity given in the New Testament sheds light on the Old Testament. To be clear, the New Testament does not reinterpret the Old. We're going to talk about that in our worship service this morning. Um, Every single time the New Testament references the Old, it is always in the original context. Nothing has ever changed. There's more clarity given. There's more light shed. Um, The doctrine of the Trinity is present in Genesis 1, 1, and 2. But you can't teach the doctrine of the Trinity solely from Genesis 1, 1, and 2. It takes New Testament revelation to help you understand that. It gives you a, a fuller picture. Rule number three, historical narrative. Stories tend serve to confirm and illustrate what's taught directly in teaching passages. Um, there's, two, there's two kind of uh, extremes on the spectrum of studying a narrative passage, a story passage. Uh, on one hand, it's possible to completely discount narrative, that they don't have any theological basis whatsoever. Um, The book of Acts is what we might call theological narrative. And some would say, well, it's it's a historical book. We don't take any theology from that. I would challenge anyone to show me one verse in the Bible we are not to take theology from. That makes no sense to me. And who made that rule? Um, so on, on the one hand, they say that there's, there's no theology. The other side of the spectrum is basing all your theology on a narrative. Uh, we don't do that either. So the balance is in between. Uh, we don't form our ecclesiology solely on the narrative of the book of Acts. It is descriptive. It's not always prescriptive, but it is theological. And and when compared to the direct didactic teaching um, that comes after the book of Acts, then Acts becomes instructive in seeing the principles that are taught in the epistles lived out in real life. Um, How many times in the epistles are we told to love one another? And we see in the book of Acts uh, people in the new church in Jerusalem just giving their possessions to each other because the church was was financially strained because so many people were being persecuted by their own families, even losing jobs, or, or they were visiting from out of town uh, when Pentecost happens. And if you visit, let, let's say uh, it's 2,000 years ago, and you visit um, Chicago, and you find out that Chicago literally has the only church on planet Earth, the only Christians, you're not going home. Right? So you see in the book of Acts the principle of loving one another lived out. But you don't base the theology solely on narrative. Rule number four 
Don't form doctrine based solely on an unclear passage. Use clearer passages to shed light on the less clear. I already said that. That's scripture interpret scripture. Uh, for example, Acts 2.38. I love this example. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is the primary verse that those who believe you must be baptized to be saved use. Because they form a doctrine based on the least clear verse about baptism uh, that we have in the New Testament. You can't form a doctrine of baptismal generation on the basis of one verse. Um, by the way, there's grammatically, there's a good argument to be made that the and be baptized part should be kind of in parenthesis. That, so you have to study all the passages around it and no one verse is going to trump a whole bunch of others just because that one verse happens to be what you believe. Rule number five, base final conclusions about doctrine based on the study of all the passages on the subject, especially if it's a big topic, especially if it's a life-changing or, or a, 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 a seminal topic that's important. For example, based solely on Revelation 3.5, you could conclude that all are born righteous and then as you reject God, God then rejects you. Because Revelation 3.5 says, The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. You could take that one verse and say, I was born righteous, but I messed up, and therefore God blotted my name from the book of life. You have to take into account Psalm 51, Romans 3, Romans 5, all kinds of all the other big soteriological passages to understand that being blotted out of the book of life is, a, is symbolic. Because that you, we're not going to teach from one verse that um, God takes salvation away from righteous people. Um, because the rest of the Bible doesn't say that. And so then you would dig deeper to find wh- what, why he's using that symbol, why he's using that, that picture. Rule number six. Maybe the most important one. Draw conclusions carefully and logically. Doctrine makes sense. It's never irrational. Uh, some doctrines, and we might argue all doctrine, but some doctrines are beyond our ability to fully grasp. That doesn't make them less true. Um, so let me, let me give you an example of a doctrine that doesn't make sense. I, and I think you're, you're spiritually astute enough to, to handle this. But read an article or read a book um, from someone who is arguing for infant baptism. Their arguments for infant baptism are insane. Well, you see, Abraham was commanded to circumcise all the kids. And since we're under the covenant of grace, which, by the way, isn't named in Scripture anywhere, um, we also baptize children because that correlates to circumcision. And you have this long progression of, uh, of really illogical conclusions. You can do that with anything. What you do is you, you start with where you want to end, and then you work your way backwards with some sort of steps that, that get you to the Bible. But it, it doesn't make sense. It's illogical. Why do we baptize believers? Because that's the only way people were ever baptized in the Bible. So that's, that's really simple for us. That's logical. That makes sense. It's never irrational. And you don't have to say, and this really, I, I, this is so important. You don't have to simplify doctrine to make it understandable. In other words, it's not true just because you're able to synthesize it down to one statement. 
So you, you, you would beware, for example, of forming doctrine on the basis of whether you think it's possible or not. The doctrine of the Trinity is a good example. There's no place in Scripture that just says, let me explain the triune God. It's a complex doctrine. This doctrine is drawn from countless passages. Is the doctrine of the Trinity completely understandable? No. Not even close. If our God was completely understandable, he wouldn't be God. Is it completely logical? Absolutely. Let me give you three reasons it's completely logical. A God who has never experienced relationship logically has needs. And a God who has needs is not, all, is not self-sufficient. But he's always been in perfect relationship. A son who's not deity can't be a sufficient sacrifice since only God is perfect and a perfect sacrifice is necessary. That's logical. And a spirit who is not deity cannot be powerfully involved in creation nor can he transform me to be like God. Only, only a spirit who is God can transform me to be like God. So the, the, the doctrine of the Trinity is not understandable. It is very logical. Um, and I always get concerned, and this is, this is big in covenant theology circles, I get concerned when people write books an inch or two inches thick on speculation, um, speculative things about the Trinity. Um, one of my favorite authors, and he's a good and godly man, but when he writes about deep theological subjects, he'll go five pages without mentioning Scripture. And that, that concerns me. Because scripture tells me what God wants me to know. And you cannot synthesize it down into logical statements that that somehow explain all of that. How do we explain the fact that salvation is 100% of God and every person who will be in hell is 100% responsible for their own sin? There is no explaining it. There's only believing it. They are two parallel tracks that never cross in scripture. If there was one verse that explained that, our brains would probably explode. Um, and I've heard so many explanations that when you go to heaven, it says God brought you here. And when you turn around, the sign, uh, the sign in heaven says, you know, you made the choice to be here. No, doesn't work. Um, if anybody ever in this church uses the egg illustration for the Trinity, you should throw it at them. Because God is not shell, yolk, and egg white. Uh, there is no illustration to explain the Trinity. The Trinity is the Trinity. So, draw conclusions carefully, logically. If it's not explainable in one statement, then just make a list of everything that's true. Um, and that's, that's what the doctrine is. And it doesn't have to be explainable. One of, one, one of the key moments in my spiritual growth was listening to a sermon from Ephesians 1 um, by a man who was trying to explain the doctrine of election. And he said, now we're hitting the wall right now because you can't, you can't understand past this. So what do you do when you hit that wall? He said that wall knocks you down to your knees and you worship God at that wall and you don't go, try to go past it because he put it there for a reason. That's, that's awesome. Uh, doesn't mean you don't try to look up the wall and see, measure it and everything you can about the wall. But the ultimate thing to do when you hit doctrine that is, becomes ununderstandable is that you, you worship. And you say, praise God that I have a God who has promised in Psalm 1611 that at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What does that mean? It means you'll learn something new about God forever and blow a brain fuse here. If God is infinite, you won't ever make progress. If he's infinite, you will never chink away at your knowledge of God. You can learn infinitely and have made no progress. Um, 
So let that cause you to worship. When you're forming doctrine, don't be silly and don't be careless. Um, that's a, it's a terrifying thing to tell someone this is what you ought to believe. And so you have to do so carefully. All right, get back on track here. Rule number seven. Keep the same emphasis Scripture has. You're probably not going to formulate a new doctrine unless your goal in life is to start a cult. If that's what you want to do, then, then formulate a new doctrine. And uh, the, the gate can't hit you on the backside fast enough on the way out of here. That's how false religions start. They start by taking one small teaching of Scripture and emphasizing it way out of proportion to what Scripture teaches. This is what pseudo-Christian cults do. Uh, let's, let's name some of them. Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, those are the two biggies. Um, you may not think of this, but Islam is a pseudo-Christian cult. Because the, the Quran is just 75% Old Testament. Like, it's, it's not even good plagiarism, much less good spiritual uh, application. Uh, I would put the Roman Catholic religion into that, that category, taking the, the parts of Scripture that are useful to them and mishandling them badly to put people under oppression. Uh, give you a great example of keeping the same emphasis that Scripture has. The charismatic movement has created a false doctrine of the primacy of the Holy Spirit. That is never the emphasis in Scripture. Yes, Holy Spirit, fully God, is integral to the redemptive plan of God, but He's not the head of the church, nor is He the primary emphasis. And on top of that, the effort to elevate the Holy Spirit has caused blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit never intended to be some sort of showpiece. And what it creates now is when you have false signs and wonders and false supposed words of knowledge and false prophecies and they all say the Holy Spirit told me. That is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. It's terrible. It's horrible. I don't, I don't know if you can stand it if you've been watching the news at Asbury uh, the, in Kentucky and the supposed revival that's happening there. It's bogus. And who are they attributing this to? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would say, uh, don't give me credit for that. Keep the same emphasis. And we've used this before. The, you know, Calvary chapels, they, their, their, their uh, symbol is the dove. And that's fine. That's great. But the irony to me is to hold up the big metal dove in front of a Calvary chapel church, you need um, a, two cross pieces of metal welded to the dove, and they look like a cross. They're like, how about switch those two? Put the cross in front of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit always points you to Christ, always points you to the Father. So keep the same emphasis Scripture has. If you're coming up with a, with a theological principle that you've never heard of before or that nobody's ever written about, to save you trouble, you're wrong. You're wrong. In 2,000 years, God did not say, I've waited and waited for Steve Swartz to finally come along and figure this out. My goal is to be creative in presentation. It is never to be creative in content. Um, I don't want to be creative. I want to know that thousands of men behind me said the same thing to the church. Rule number eight. How are we doing on time? We're okay. Make careful distinctions between persons, persons, uh, places, time periods, contexts, and events. Don't confuse them or attempt to mix them to come to a preconceived doctrinal conclusion. Biggest one, you must understand covenants. You cannot understand the Bible without understanding covenants. You must understand that the Abrahamic covenant is forever and you're part of it. You must understand that the Mosaic Covenant was temporary. You're not part of it. 
and it, it, when you grasp those, and we have a whole section in our in our theology time uh, on the covenants, and, and we have good reading and some good um, series on this online as well. You must understand the, the context of covenant. That's why the, the concept of a, an overarching covenant of grace where Abraham and somebody in the New Testament are essentially identical, um, that, that's dangerous. It's not good. You need to understand the, the context of the covenants. Um, it leads you to wrong doctrinal conclusions. Uh, another example, don't confuse the persons of the Trinity. The Father did not die on the cross. And so you want to be precise. Um, how many times have you heard, I don't know, maybe me, Father, thank you for dying on the cross. Well, I appreciate the sentiment, but the Father didn't die on the cross. Um, or, or, you know, Jesus, um, thank you for sending your son. I heard that one just the other day. Jesus doesn't have a son. So um, make careful distinctions. Details matter. And so check yourself. Um, you should have, if you're making a theological statement, you should have a theology or two on your shelf to pull down, look up that topic. Um, and the best theologies have what's called an annotated, uh, an annotated index or, or a table of contents, where the table of contents, instead of just being one page, is like 10 pages, and it lists every topic with the page numbers. Um, Biblical Doctrine by MacArthur Mayhew has an annotated index or, or a table of contents. That's helpful. So, rule number eight, be detailed and and be careful. And I'll just, as an example, do some doctrinal implications from uh, Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Forgiveness of sin by God happens by means of Christ. That is our soteriological example. There are expectations of the Christian in response to salvation. That is the doctrine of sanctification. God has the right to obey you to command him. You have ecclesiology, you have lordship, you have the soteriology of lordship. That What does that tell you? That tells you that there's no such thing as getting saved and then later getting sanctified, um, as our Wesleyan brothers would say. That Christ is your Lord and Savior, not just your Savior and later your Lord. We would see from anthropology, the study of man, Christians are not yet fully sanctified and perfected. Therefore, we have a doctrine of progressive sanctification. You're not there yet. That's why we preach every Sunday, not one time. To just say, if we say, here's one sermon that tells you how to obey the Lord, go and do likewise, see you in heaven. No, the doctrine of sanctification says that six days or seven days between sermons is probably about six days too long, right? You can go through your Bible Training Institute notes. You can go through um, a theology. And I, this is old information. Ryrie's basic theology is, is nice, but we've switched over to biblical doctrine. Um, and you can check yourself. What does this teach me about God? What does it teach me about Christ, about the Spirit, about the church, about uh, soteriology, the study of salvation, anthropology, the nature of man? Just asking those questions of the ten major um, areas of theology, eleven if you count Israelology, I like making that one, um, and that will help you come to theological conclusions. So what what does this do? What Why bother with taking the time to draw theological conclusions. What it does is it helps keep you from moralizing the text and just making it a little lesson about me. As you study the theology of a text, what you begin to come to is, oh, this is pointing me upward, not inward. And the more I'm pointed upward, the more the inward is purified and cleaned. I read an article the other day by 
somebody who had, he and his wife had uh, lost a little girl to leukemia. I think she was three. And, you know, it's life crushing. It was, it was their only child. Just absolutely life crushing. And his testimony was that the way they got through that trial was reading R.C. Sproul's book, The Holiness of God, over and over again. Because it put them solely and 100% God-focused. And they found their grief comforted. They found their, their trust in the Lord growing. They, they weren't reading just practical how-to books, which is fine. But they were pointed upward. And as you study theology, it points you upward and it elevates the text. And you, if I could say this, it gives you a, a really healthy trembling fear of not messing up the text and making it just all about me. Because is Ephesians 4, 31 and 32 about your behavior as a Christian? Yes, it is. But what is it really about? It is about the fact that we are called to glorify God. Context is everything. Ephesians 4, 1, walk in a manner worthy. It's pointed upward. And that's a whole different motivation now. And so your theological study is important. It, it gets you from looking down to looking up. And that, that helps you understand uh, the loftier nature. I think every verse in the Bible is lofty. Every verse in the Bible is grand and glorious. Um, even the ones in Leviticus that say that if you're going to go to the bathroom, you have to go outside the camp. Why is that lofty and glorious? Because it illustrates God is a pure God and don't do that around me. It, it illustrates a theological concept of the holiness and purity and separateness of God. So... If you're doing the assignment, drop down to the mundane here, and I'll leave this up. Summarize your observations, combining them into detailed, richer statements. Try making one chart just for fun. Don't be scared. Uh, If it doesn't turn out right, just make a new one. It's just an experiment. And then draw two or three theological observations from your text, remembering that if you have a narrative text like Acts, draw doctrinal conclusions, tentatively study your cross-references and confirm your doctrinal uh, conclusions there. So, just make a few theological thoughts which you can develop later. And um, I, Look, that's the way that the Puritans used to preach. They had a very simple outline. First, they read the text. Then they made observations from the text. Uh, then they made theological conclusions from the text and then they applied the text same it's very simple same sermon outline every time uh, i'd love to live in that era there was no creativity needed because they just listened so there you go any questions on what we've talked about today i've got a minute or two before we have to go well you actually stayed except for poor david i guess he just had to go so you actually stayed thank you for for weaving your minds into the mundane and um, I, I'm praying I, I pray for you and I pray that your uh, your study of the word is very very fruitful and that it begins to make you more and more able to do this so um, practice 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 that'll be the way to go let me pray for us and then we'll be done our father we thank you for a, a time this morning and I know what we're talking about today is really just talking about the Bible not really talking through scripture and yet, it is good preparation for us, and we're reminded from your, your uh, call and your commission of Jeremiah that the Bible, the truths contained therein, are meant to tear apart that which is false before building up that which is true. And I pray that would be the case in all of our hearts this Lord's Day. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you, everybody, for listening.